I get up here and I get giddy about talking about sin and children of the devil and everybody's condemned. And like, it's not the thrill of my life. <laughs> yes, I like passages like last week. But it's the truth of what God has to say to us. And there's times he wants to comfort us and motivate a different kind of life because of his love and because of his coming. There's also times he wants to confront us and confront us in a wrong way of viewing the world and to confront us in a wrong way of viewing salvation. And this is one of those times. And so the false teachers in this book, after they have kind of messed with the deity of Jesus, have made this statement. You can be perfectly fine with Jesus. You and God can be great together. And it make absolutely zero impact on the way you live your life. And so they are teaching people through clever words and through philosophy and through ideas and argumentations that you and Jesus can be good while you live in a way that looks like you have no clue who he is. And so that's kind of the main thing. And I want you to think about if you were to look around the religious landscape of our country. Would you see this? God exists to make you rich and to make you healthy. So we are teaching people, come to God for your own greed. And you can be as greedy as you want to be, especially if it enriches them. And you and God can be great while you're greedy. Another thing that has taken denomination after denomination and church after church and pastor after pastor and speaker after speaker and leader after leader is the idea. You and God can be good while you redefine what he says marriage is. You and God can be perfect and fine. And you can be a Christian and you can be great and you should be fine just the way you are. You don't have to change at all. You and God can be fine while you live that way. Or church after church. We don't care what you're like as long as we can fill up the room. If we can get enough people here, it doesn't really matter how you live. And that was kind of the church growth myth of the 90s and some of the 80s was if we can just fill up buildings, God will clean them up eventually. But it doesn't matter if they actually change, meaning they're actually converted. And that is a false teaching that is as old as the Bible itself. It is as old as First John, where we have a group of teachers saying, come after us because you and God can be fine while you live a lifestyle characterized habitually owned by sin. Meaning you can know God and it have no moral, practical implications on your life. And it's not true. And John, John's going to say that and he's going to say it pretty directly. I don't think he'll miss his point as we read. Um, and so I'm going to try to temper it because it is not the fact that Christians sin, right? That's that's he's already settled that for you know, uh, chapter one, verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we're, we're liars, basically. So it's not saying we can be sinless because that's the fear of reading passages like this. It's like, what about grace and what about the salvation? And he's not saying because in chapter two, verse one, I write these so that you won't sin. But if you do sin, you'll have an advocate with the father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. And so it's not saying sinless. And so how I would say it is, are we in the fight of faith to embrace Jesus as the savior of our sins and Jesus as the conqueror of our sins? Or are we saying to people, live however you want. Don't worry about fighting it. Just embrace who you want to be. And it's fine. And in, in, in the way John puts it, or I think the way John is putting it is a lifestyle that is characterized by habitually. Sin and not righteousness. Sin is very natural to you as opposed to unnatural 
to you. Sin is embraced by you as opposed to fought by you. And I think that's what he's talking about in the text. So let's jump in. First John three, four through 10 says this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is the reason the Son of God appeared, and it was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would make your truth clear. The truth that we are new in Christ and that has sealed us forever and nothing can shake us from that and, and nothing can take us from that new identity. But also that we would understand that if we do have that new nature, if we do have that new identity, it'll make us different people. And so, God, comfort those who are prone to guilt with a gospel hope and comfort those who are or, or confront those who are prone to saying it just doesn't matter. I got Jesus. It's fine. God, I pray you'd confront them with a text like this and say, no, that's not true. But help us to walk with the understanding of grace and the understanding of truth, Father, that only you can help us with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus' work in us makes a sin lifestyle impossible. Jesus' work in us makes a sin lifestyle impossible. And I, I'm trying to find the right word. I think lifestyle, that's kind of the key word. Because it's not that we don't sin. It's not that we don't fall. It's not that we don't struggle with habitual sin. But it is that sin does not define who we are. I think that's the point that sin doesn't sin isn't the characteristic overarching principle of our life. It's not our lifestyle. It is an unnatural thing that we fight versus a natural thing that is embodies who we are. That's what we're going to go with. So first, Jesus came to take away sins, therefore abide in him and eradicate eradicate sin. Jesus came to take away our sins, therefore abide in him and eradicate sin. You may have noticed I wear glasses. I didn't always. I remember the exact moment when I realized I needed glasses. So I'm assuming for a long time I couldn't see, and yet I drove. But we were in this small town called Roanoke Rapids, just before you get to Virginia, uh, off, what, 95, Pastor Roanoke Church there. And they had something kind of like our Northside Drive, just restaurant row, only that was all the town, not just part of the town. And so I, I knew every restaurant, okay, that's that, and that's that. And so I have completely fuzzy vision. I am not seeing anything, but I just know where everything is. And so I've just kind of learned to live not being able to see. And so one night I remember driving into town with Amy and I'm like, Amy, can you read that sign? Well, yeah. Okay. All right. Next sign. Tell me when you can read it. And then I'm going to tell you when I can read it. Okay. I can read it. I'm driving. driving. 
Oh, okay, now I can see it, right? Because I can see close, I can't see far away. So I go to the doctor, I get a pair of glasses, and this amazing thing happens. The world gets clear all of a sudden. Like fuzzy lines around really big, bright signs start to make clear lines. And I can see, and I can actually read what is on those signs. It's an amazing experience. You should try it sometime if you never have. But that's what it's like to be lost. When we are apart from Jesus, our vision is fuzzy. We do not see the world the way it is. We do not see with clear sharpness the world and what's going on and the decisions and what's true and valuable and right and meaningful. We have fuzzy, blinded vision. And the same is true of you if you've allowed yourself to drift from God. Meaning you haven't embraced a time with him on a regular basis. You haven't cultivated a rich life of prayer or the word or you've neglected fellowship with other believers or you've neglected gathering with other believers for worship and you've drifted you're blinding yourself your vision is fuzzy and you don't realize it I went years not being able to read and not realizing it sign and that's the way you are we drift from god things get fuzzy and we just don't even realize how bad our eyesight has become the point well, that story is this. The more clearly we see the beauty of Jesus, the more clearly we will see how ugly and destructive sin is. To see the beauty of Jesus is to uncover sin and take all of the pretty clothes off of it and all the makeup of it, off of it and see that is death and that is destruction and it's killing my relationships and it's killing my marriage and it's killing my kids and it's killing me and it's killing my witness. It has no power but to destroy. To see Jesus is to unblind yourself to sin. So let's look at it as we walk into the text in those first few verses. There's this consistent point throughout the text. It is this. You cannot practice sin If you have the new nature of Jesus within you. And so the new nature of Jesus is incompatible with a lifestyle of sin. That is a consistent point throughout. And then he goes on and he says there's these two sides. There is children of God and there are children of the devil. And the children of God have this new nature of God. And this new nature of God produces a lifestyle of growing righteousness and love. And then there are children of the devil who have their original nature, their natural nature of fallenness. And it produces nothing but a lifestyle of sin. And by the way, sin can look very churchy. You can sit in church every week and look great and serve on teams and serve on committees and be self-righteous and prideful and arrogant and gossiping and critical and lost. Or all of those things. And yet you, it's pushed you so far away from Jesus that your experience of Jesus is all but absent. And... The other side is true, right? That nature of sin can show up and I am just throwing the cards down all in as rebellious as I can possibly do anything I want and everything I want. It can look like either of those and everything in between. But if we have the nature of God inside of us, it will produce a nature of growing righteousness outside of us. If we do not have the nature of God, then it will produce a nature of sin or an outward expression of sin. Whatever that happens to to look like. And so here we go. That's kind of the text. And he's making a point against the false teachers because the point of the false teachers. All right. Jesus isn't God. That was chapter two. And then this other point today is somehow through their clever words, they have convinced a group of people or are trying to convince a group of people. You can be good with God and live however you want. 
And that's Paul's, I mean, that's John's point throughout this text. It is not true. It is incompatible to have the nature of God and desire to sin. That's Romans 6, right? Why don't we just keep sinning? Grace is so wonderful. Let's just let grace abound all the more. No. Do you not know as many of you were baptized into Jesus, were baptized into his death, and just as he was dead and raised by the glory of God the Father, you too were raised? You can't keep on sinning because it's no longer who you are unless it is who you are. And that's the problem of the text that he's addressing. Okay, so here we go. Throughout the passage, everyone, no one, everyone who practices sin. I think practices becomes that key word throughout the text. It is habitual. It's characteristic. It's characteristic. It's lifestyle of sin. Right. And so whoever does that practices lawlessness. The word for lawlessness is the word to live like there is no law. And it is not to live like there's no law of Moses back in the Old Testament, uh, because that's not in the book of First John. Instead, what, I, what it means is it's to live in active rebellion and active disobedience to the moral standard of God. Whoever practices sin is the habitual characteristic lifestyle of, of their life. And I'm trying to make it that clear because I don't want you to, to like fall into, well, I struggle with sin, therefore I'm gone. No, I, it's the characteristic habitual lifestyle. Whoever does that lives in active rebellion to God and in active disobedience to his moral standard. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is living like there is no law. Sin is living in rejection of God's law. And that's, that's what he's addressing in these false teachers, right? You can live in active rebellion to God and be fine. And that's not the case. So look at it. He roots that into the nature of Jesus next. And so he goes on from that and says, whoever practices sin is lawlessness. And then look at this. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. What has Jesus done? He came and he took the basket of your sins, past, present, and future, and the basket of our sins, past, present, and future, and he got rid of them. And so at the cross, Jesus forgave you of your sins. At the cross, Jesus killed your sin. And so he took it away. And so what is the work of Jesus? Forgiveness. But it's not just forgiveness. It is to take your active current sins and remove them out of your life, to eradicate them from your life. And so he came to forgive you and he came to kill sin within you. Do you not know that Jesus came to take away your sins? Not just take them away and forgive them, take them away and get them out of your life. Remove them. And then he goes on and he roots it into the person of Jesus too. Not just the work of Jesus to take away our sins, but the person of Jesus. Don't you know the sinless one has taken away your sins so that you look like him and become more and more sinless? Don't you know that there is a sinless one whose beauty you can gaze on? And if you gaze on it, you can't want sin to keep you from him again. You can't want sin to get in the way of your experience of him again. Which kind of leads into the next little phrase, right? No one who abides in Jesus can keep on sinning. Did you know that there is sin killing power in a vision of Jesus? So I get the idea of glasses and the idea of vision from. If you abide in Jesus, if you live at home in Jesus, that's what we talked about is I'm going to move my stuff into Jesus's house and live in Jesus's family as in a close, intimate relationship with Jesus. And if you do that, you can't live in sin anymore. It's no longer possible. It is incompatible to have the nature of God and the nature of sin at the same time. And so what is he saying? So that's just it's a it's a it's a reality thing. But it's more than that. 
It's also a practical power for overcoming sin. Do you want to conquer sin in your life? You don't do it by like holding your breath and counting to ten and, um, I don't know, whatever your little technique is. The way you will kill sin in your life is to cultivate intimacy with Jesus. Because the more you see Jesus, the more you'll see sin for what it is. The more you see Jesus, the more you'll be empowered to kill the sin that he took away from you. Whoever abides in Jesus, it's impossible for them to keep on sinning. And so have you cultivated a relationship with Jesus that kills sin? Have you said, I need to see you in your word daily because I'm that bad. I need to see this beauty daily. What are you like? What have you done? Remind me, Jesus, because I need to see it again. Have you cultivated a vision of Jesus and his word? Are you spending time in prayer? Not to say I have prayed today or God just give me stuff. But if you spent time to say, Jesus, I want to know you. God, I want to know you. God, I just think about and I'm amazed that you are this and you are that and you're holy and you're beautiful and you're worthy. And, and to thank you because you have provided so great a redemption that has conquered our sins and killed on the cross. And so I spend this time adoring Jesus and I spend this time thanking Jesus. And I spend this time confessing who I am. I spend this time in this time asking, are you cultivating a relationship with Jesus? Because a relationship with Jesus is the only thing that will ever conquer sin in your life. Now, you might confine that I could trade one sinful obsession for a new sinful obsession. You know, I'll go cold turkey by just starting something else. And if, if that one gets too destructive, I'll find a less destructive sin pattern. And if that's too destructive, I'll find another less destructive sin pattern. And you just trade out your, your sins is all. The only way to kill sin is to see Jesus. Whoever abides in him or no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. But the reverse is also true. If you keep on sinning, do you know what it means? You've never seen Jesus for who he is in salvation. You've never known him in saving fellowship. That's what it's saying. And so the idea of abiding mirrors the idea of seeing and knowing. And so I think that's a great picture. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? It means to see in an increasing clarity and way, Jesus. I have beheld the glory of the Lord that's transforming me. I've seen Jesus. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? It means to know him by experience and ongoing relationship. That's what it means to abide. You see and you know. And if you see and you know, it will kill sin in your life as a natural byproduct. But if it doesn't, then you've not seen and you've not known. So I just challenge you, pursue Jesus. Don't just pursue stopping sin. Pursue Jesus and pursue stopping sin. So abide in him. No one who abides in him continue, keeps on sinning. And the one who keeps on sinning has neither seen him or known him. It's just not possible. And so I want to pull back from a second because I know some of you. This is fear and guilt time. Oh, man, I sin. I even sin a lot or I have a habit of sinning or there's a stronghold in my life and it just won't go away. I must be lost. I just want to set you free. That's not how the gospel works. In fact, one of the evidences of the gospel is that you fight your sin versus embrace it. And so if you get up and you hate your sin, it's an evidence of the gospel working in you. If you get up and say, I'm so tired of this pride. I'm so tired of this lust. I am so tired of this Fighting, whatever it is, it's an evidence of the gospel at work in you because it's warfare. 
It's not giving into it. And so I want to give you a couple of pieces of ammunition in your weapon, in your warfare against sin. And, and it kind of has to go in this order. So I'm going to give them to you in an order. Weapon one, believe your identity in the gospel. You are a beloved one. You are loved by God permanently in the gospel. You are a child of God permanently in the gospel. That's who you are. Believe it. And there's a bunch of other things. Just read the Bible and accumulate in your arsenal. This is who God says I am in the gospel. This is who God says I am in the gospel. This is who God says I am in the gospel. And remind yourself until you actually believe this is who you are. Then step two in your arsenal or weapon two in your arsenal. Uh, Embrace um, or remind yourself of what the gospel has done. I am accepted in the gospel. Shame has been taken from me. I am accepted permanently in the gospel, not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus has done. I am secured by the gospel, never, ever to be cast off from God again because I'm secured by him and not by me. I am loved in the gospel. And that is true of me. I am accepted, loved, secured and forgiven. That is what's true in the gospel. So you've got your identity in place in a growing way. You have got your truths that are true of you in the gospel, no matter what you have done or will do. And then you take the third step and only take the third step of apply the practical teachings and principles and commands of God to whatever area it is. So root yourself in the identity. Fill yourself up with the richness of what God has done for you in the gospel and then go to war practically against the sin that is part of your life. And that's how we make war on sin to where it's no longer our characteristic but it increasingly becomes this abnormal, unnatural experience for us as we cultivate life with Jesus. Second thing. Okay, Jesus came to destroy Satan's work, therefore practice righteousness. Jesus came to destroy Satan's work, therefore practice righteousness. So the world, if you haven't noticed or read a newspaper in the last 20 years, it's broken. Bad. And if you haven't happened to watch any news for the last, like, three months... To see the kind of leaders that are going to be elected next, the world is really broken. We're broken on a global scale. We've got ISIS and wars and jockeying for power and nations conquering nations and taking their territory and using each other. We're broken nationally. I don't care who you're going for, by the way. Goodness isn't winning this time, right? I don't think we're going to wake up on November, what is it, the 9th and be like, I am so proud. This is so wonderful, this person that is elected now. It's just not going to happen, right? And it's symptomatic of how broken our world is. And it's symptomatic of how far our country is from God. The world is a broken place. And we're broken. It's broken naturally as we have Hurricane Matthew come through. It's broken personally as our relationships and our marriages are invitations of sin and struggle. It's broken uh, in the sense of personal lostness and abuse and violence. It's a broken place. When Satan brought the fall into the equation, he broke the world physically and it is subjected to futility, groaning, waiting on Jesus redemption. He broke the world relationally. Adam and Eve are now going to fight for the rest of their existence for the power of their relationship, the power place of their relationship. You may find that's true in you, too. It broke the world relationally. It broke the world, not just husband and wife, but all of our relationships. It broke the world uh, emotionally. Where there is no longer peace, there is no longer rest, there is no longer joy, there is no longer hope. He broke the world that way and he broke the world spiritually. Where those, everybody born is separated from God. 
hopelessly without Jesus. Now, here's the good news. Jesus stepped into this world to unwind every piece of the fall. Jesus stepped into the world to restore the world physically as it waits his final redemption. Jesus stepped into the world to restore the world relationally as he creates unity from the diversity of this world, as he creates peace among people who would not be at peace outside of the church, as he creates uh, relational harmony within marriages where we love and serve each other and give ourselves for each other and create a relational harmony within a body called the church. That's why he says, guard the unity of the spirits in the bonds of peace. Fight for the unity that I have created. He mends the world emotionally as he restores people to love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And he restores the world spiritually. As far as the curse touched in Genesis 3 is how far the work of Jesus extends to unwind what has been accomplished. And one day it will be unwound permanently when he comes back and Eden will again be restored. And we will live in the garden forever. And there will be a crystal clear river flowing from the throne of God called the river of life. And we'll be never cut off from life again. And there will be a tree, not two trees this time. There will be one tree who will always bear its fruit in season. There will be one tree of life and not the tree of death anymore. That's what Jesus has accomplished. He has destroyed the works of the devil and he will destroy the works of the devil in your life as he restores you to God. That's what he's up to. Look at the text as we look at it in verse 7 and, and following. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So he goes back with his fatherly greeting, right? I love you guys. You're my, you're my precious children. You, you're my, I care for you. Do not let anyone deceive you. And it's the most pointed statement against false teachers so far. We know the passage is about confronting them as they say, you can live however you want and be fine with God. And that's not true. Do not let them deceive you with that lie. If you practice righteousness, you are righteous and he is righteous. But if you don't, oh, get there in a second. I want you to I want you to dissect that statement for a second. Outward righteousness, whoever practices outward righteousness is righteous, inward righteousness, just as he is righteous. And so let's let's work that backwards. Jesus, the righteous one, gives us his righteousness, not ours, and places it on us at salvation. That righteousness that he placed on us works itself out into our practice of actual ongoing righteousness. Does that make sense? So we practice righteousness because we've been made righteous by Jesus, the righteous one. That's what the text is saying. So don't let anyone deceive you. If you have met Jesus, the righteous one, he made you righteous and righteousness will come out of your life. If righteousness doesn't come out of your life, he has not made you righteous because you've not met the righteous one. That's the way he's working. That's what he's saying to us. It is impossible to have a new nature and not a new lifestyle growing in you that comes from that. It's impossible to be somebody different and live like you're not somebody different. It's not true. Don't let a false teacher, no matter how clever they are, no matter how witty they are, no matter how philosophical they are, no matter how smart they are, no matter how they can twist scripture and make you confused. Don't let anyone teach you that you can be fine with God and not live like you and God know each other. Don't let him trick you into that. It's so destructive. And by the way, let me just tell you a secret. 
You're not offering hope to people that you accept in their sin. Now, I don't mean be ugly to them, right? But if you're saying you can live in your sin, you don't have to repent, the gospel doesn't have to change you, you don't help them a bit. You make them happy with you and comfortable with you until they walk out of this life in the next and say, why in the world didn't you tell me if I didn't have Jesus, I wasn't okay? Why didn't you tell me Jesus transforms people instead of just says, you're fine just the way you are? Why didn't you tell me that? You're not doing anybody any favors by, and again, I'm beloved. Be compassionate, be gracious, be winsome, serve people, love them like crazy, but do not ever affirm them that they don't have to fight against sin. And don't let them affirm you that you don't have to fight against sin because you're destroying people that way. You're not saving them. All right, that was free. Jesus came to destroy the works. Let no one deceive you. Look at the look at the next part after that. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and the devil has been, a, has been sinning from the beginning. So do you see that? Don't let anyone deceive you. If, you. if the righteous one makes you righteous, you'll live righteousness, and the other side is true. Whoever makes a practice of sinning outwardly, sin is their nature inwardly, which means they are not a child of God. And this is John and the Holy Spirit, and I agree with him. It makes you a child of the devil. Read it. Get mad at the Holy Spirit. It's, up on, it's in big letters right here. It's right there. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, God, right? Just, just put God at the end of the quote, is of the devil. That's what he says. There is an evil one who is personally evil, and his whole purpose in life is to destroy God. And since you can't win against God, do you know how you destroy God? You kill the people that are made in his image. If I can kill the image of God over and over and over again, I can kill God. Over and over and over again. And that's what the devil has been doing from the beginning is wreaking destruction and havoc and separation and fight and division and death throughout humanity. And he loves it. He loves it. But Jesus came and he died on the cross to crush the devil and to disarm principalities and powers, to set people free, to go be agents of redemption that restore people instead of destroy people. And so he opposes the work of God by destroying and killing. And we cooperate with the work of God by being changed and agents of change and redemption in the world. Don't let anyone deceive you that it's any other way than that. It might sound prettier than I'm saying it. They might be more eloquent and creative. They are probably a lot cooler and they've got better hair. I know that's true. I've seen them. But don't let anyone deceive you by saying that what the Bible says is not true. Don't let them deceive you. Just because they can say it better and more cleverly or smart or philosophically or whatever. Don't let them tell you what God says isn't what God says. All right. Last step. Jesus came to give a new nature and life, so pursue righteousness and love. Jesus came to give us a new nature and life, so pursue righteousness and love. All right, so I've got some kids on the back row back there. Don't look. It'll make Amy upset. All right, so if you see them roaming around the church, you're not really shocked to know that where their parents are you. Like, there's no denying Emily, Sarah, Lydia, and Christopher came from Amy and I. All right, you're not surprised. And if you spend any time with them, here's something else that won't surprise you. If you get into their little wirings and their personalities, you're going to see one to two of them are almost exactly like me. Family resemblance. And one to two of them are exactly like Amy and her wiring and her personality. Family resemblance. 
There is no denying them physically, and there is no denying them in their personalities and their wirings. Guess what? If you are born of God, if you're his child, he will create a family resemblance within you. You will have a family resemblance in your new nature. You'll have a family resemblance in your new wiring, in your new personality, in your new ways of behaving and living. He's going to start to show up. There'll be a family resemblance with God. And that's this last step in the text. It says to us, verses 9 and 10. Now, he gives us, again, we're not going to go through all the words because a lot of it's repeated. But no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. We've been there. Why is it we don't make a practice of sinning? He gives us two reasons. One, God's seed abides in us. And we don't know exactly what that means because it's not used in the New Testament a lot. Here's what we think it means. God's life and God's nature has been born into you, which leads us to the second one. You have been born of God. And so God has come in and given you a new birth at at the gospel. And that new birth gave birth to the life of God within you and the nature of God within you. That's why he talks about, you know, I've been crucified with Christ and yet I live. Yet it's no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see, I have been born again and being born again creates God's life in me and God's life and nature grow within me to take over me. And that's why it's impossible to sin. The life of God and the nature of God and the birth of God are now part of who I am. And the life of God and the nature of God and the person of God is totally holy And the family resemblance begins to be growing holiness. And then the last step is a step of evidence. With all this said, the crystallized point of the end of the text is this. What evidence does your life give? What evidence or where does the evidence point about what is true about you? By this, it is evident by what we see in your life. It is evident whose child you are. Whether you're a child of God or a child of the devil. Again, is it up there? That's God. You know, put that quotation marks. God. Okay. so talk to him. If you don't like it, you can email me, too. That's okay. But make sure you have a conversation with him first. By this evidence of our lives. We get to see where does Chris's life point? Where does your life point? Where does the evidence weigh? This is how we know if you're a child of God or a child of the devil. And he's going to give the two qualifications. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. And that's including your friends and your brothers that are really nice and your family that is really nice. And I don't say that harshly because I have family this way, too. And it breaks my heart. But I'm not going to, like, no, they they went to church once, so I think they're okay. It breaks my heart where my family is because they're lost. But but I can't say because they're my family they're not lost. And maybe you need to ask that question of your own life. And I need to ask that question, is righteousness the marker of my life? And by the way, let's step back and define righteousness. Righteousness does not mean consistent church attendance, though you should do that. Righteousness doesn't mean that you have your name on the church, you know, committee structure 12 times. Although that's great and we appreciate it and it's valuable. It doesn't mean you wrote a check this morning. It doesn't mean, although that is righteous, it doesn't make you righteous. Right? Righteousness is not a legalism. 
Righteousness is the whole realm of existence that, where your life mirrors God. It's compassion. It's humility. It's justice. It's speaking for those who cannot speak for themselves. It's taking up the cause of the oppressed. It is purity and it is humility and it is confession when we sin and asking for forgiveness. Righteousness is not simply just this limited set of rules we put on ourselves. It's, it's looking like God. And whoever does not increasingly look like God, they're not his child, it says. Nor is the one who does not love. So if you are selfish and self-consumed and you only give to people to get from people and you only fill other people up because you want them to fill you back up or you only um, use people to get what you want or manipulate them, that is not love. That's loveless. And that's what the children of the devil do. They use people and abuse people and consume people. And they don't have righteousness, but the children of God are righteous. They pursue humility and faith and love and grace and righteousness and holiness and justice and conquering oppression and bringing people from death to life. That's what they do. And they love. That means they sacrifice themselves. They value somebody enough to sacrifice themselves for their good without expecting anything in return. That's, that's love. I value you enough to sacrifice for you, for your own good, without expecting anything in return. And so self-preservation and self-consumed is loveless. Pouring out into others, not needing anything in return because God's poured out into you without needing anything in return, but I've been filled by God so I'm able to pour out into others, that's love. That's God. Kind of love. Let's close a few practical things as we wind down. Jesus bore your sins. Sorry, I just hit something. <laughs> Jesus bore your sins so you don't have to. If you're lost, I invite you to turn from your sin and believe that. Jesus took every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, and he nailed it to a cross. He knew no sin, but he became sin for you that, the right, that you might have the righteousness of God in him. Would you repent and believe that? Or as a believer, will you believe that? Will you believe that he took away your sin? And your shame doesn't have to cover and pay back anything else. And if you just feel guilty enough and beat yourself up enough, maybe you can pay back God for your sins. Except for you have nothing to pay back. Jesus took your sin and he killed it at the cross. He came to take away your sins. Don't keep trying to pay him back. He paid for it. And so shame has no place. Guilt has no place other than to point you back to the one who pours grace over your guilt and your shame. Second one, cultivate a rich relationship with Jesus now. Your best weapon against sin will always be the beauty of Jesus Christ. Your best weapon against sin will always be an ongoing, intimate relationship with Jesus. And if you have a relationship with Jesus that is flourishing then you will find sin increasingly disappearing. But without a relationship to Jesus, nothing you do will ever stop your sin. You will not quit looking at that junk on the Internet by simply trying to stop looking at that junk on the Internet and having a friend hold you accountable. If you're not also turning your gaze to see the beauty of Jesus, apart from a relationship with Jesus, you will not ever conquer sin. But with the beauty of Jesus, as your gaze increasingly filling up your vision, you will conquer sin. Again, identity, what the gospel has done, practically fight. Make sure you have all three pieces in place. 
Fight sin and pursue practical righteousness. Be killing sin, John Owen said, or sin will be killing you. I just promise you this. If you are not fighting against sin and for a vision of Jesus, you are not drifting in the right direction. None of us drift in the right direction. If you're not actively pursuing Jesus, sin is actively pursuing and winning against you. And it may look fine to everybody else, but on the inside it's not. It's breaking you. And in your relationships, it's breaking you. And in your family, it's breaking you. It's winning. Kill sin by loving Jesus and seeing Jesus. Or sin will kill you. Sin does not produce good in your life. It destroys stuff. It wrecks stuff. It's like bringing the wrecking ball across the house of your life. Deeper with one application that's on there, I'd ask you to read it. We need to fight this fight together. We can't win alone. We'll never win alone. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, help us with hard messages like this, not to, be, to fall into guilt and shame, but to allow them to point us back to Jesus, to see him and be changed by him. Father, help us over and over and over and over and over again see the beauty of Jesus and be changed. Degree by degree by degree being changed. Father, we, we pray that your spirit would not relent in his work so that we would know that we are yours and the fight continues and faith is increased and Jesus is precious, Father. We need you to remind us of who we are. We need you to remind us of what we've done. We need you to empower us to get back in the fight. And so, God, we ask you to do that over and over again. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.